Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. Farming, getting your hands dirty, living off the land. A lot of us tend to romanticize agriculture, especially here in Iowa, where agriculture has always been an important part of our culture and our economy. The realities of farming are complicated and challenging. As a journalist, Beth Hoffman had reported on food and agriculture from the outside. Now she's a farmer and, using her journalistic skills, has just published an in-depth look at farming from the inside. It's called Bet the Farm, the Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. Beth Hoffman will be in conversation with the great Chuck Offenberger virtually through Prairie Lights Bookstore on December 3rd at 7 p.m. And she is on the line with me now. Hello, Beth. Hi, Charity. Thanks for having me here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And let's start by talking about your personal story, because farming was not really a a part of your plan, at least not for a very long time. So you had been a working journalist. You then became a an associate professor of journalism, but you fell in love with an Iowa boy. Give me the background. Yeah, I we were living in San Francisco. Um, I had moved there to go to grad school. Um, and yeah, I had grown up probably never really thinking about where my food came from or thinking about farming at all. Um, and I met John. He was a neighbor. And probably within the first five minutes of meeting him, he told me he was going to move back to Iowa to take over his family's farm. And, um, yeah, I probably could not have accurately pointed out Iowa on a map (laughs) at the time. And um, although I was covering food and agriculture, so um, at this point I've covered food and agriculture for about 25 years. um, And so it, it wasn't crazy. It wasn't a crazy idea after we, you know, fell in love, got married, started visiting the farm. Um, it wasn't a crazy idea to come and take it over, uh, but of course there were lots of challenges to get us here. So one of them being that we had, you know, nice, very comfortable lives in San Francisco. Um, but yeah, we did it. Well, so we'll talk about your farm now uh, in a little while, but tell me when you first started coming back for the summers and and for visits to your husband's family farm, tell me about that farm. Yeah, the farm is 530 acres um, in South Central Iowa. So rolling hills, um, lots of uh, patches of forest, um, and, you know, lots of water. So we were living in San Francisco, and that was probably, like, number one surprise. Like, wow, there's a place where there's farming and lots of water at the same time. Um, and so that was a, a great thing to see, the lushness of this area. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, though, as a, as a reporter of food and agriculture and, and focused really on sustainable agriculture, I do. I remember coming here the first few times and being kind of surprised that there were birds flying around and there weren't frogs with five legs. You know, it was just that that the the issues with pesticides and and fertilizers it it, it had been discussed as if 
there was nothing left. And the reality of it was, was that there's a lot left. There's a great base from which we can really uh, make a lot of great changes. So it was exciting um, to come here and spend the summers. And we just, I started developing kind of my own relationship with the farm as we kind of went out as a family to fix fence for the day or swam in the ponds. Um, I, I just started to see that it could be something I could possibly do. You also did something that that I think is incredibly valuable, and that's that you sat down and you actually interviewed family members to, to really get a history of the family and of the farm. Yeah, it, it, was, it was something I'm not sure my husband really um, was thinking about at the time, but uh, it really gave me a lot of insight into his family. So I was um, a journalist, but also more specifically a radio journalist. And so I had lots of great recording um, devices and microphones and whatnot. Um, so when I first came to the farm, he asked me to do sort of a family history with his parents. And it just allowed me to really get this very deep insight to the family very early on in our relationship that I I don't know that I ever would have gotten. And I got to record those and be able to um, just, you know, really learn about not only the family, but about agriculture here, because it was a story of agriculture in Iowa. Um, I think to add to what I saw when I first came here is that John's dad was growing corn and soybeans conventionally and had cattle like a lot of people in this area of Iowa do. So I learned a lot about that, that um, I had not learned from book learning and even from interviewing people in California because it was such a different environment. So as you and your husband were hatching this dream of taking over the farm and uh, farming your way, tell me about your vision. Well, we weren't quite sure. I mean, initially, really, it was um, it was how do we get there and how do, how is this even going to work um, about taking over the farm? So, you know, challenge number one, and many of your listeners will be very familiar with this challenge, it was transitioning the farm from one generation to the next, um, which we could talk a lot more about um, if you'd like. But We will, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, John's dad was here, and like many farms, all the land, all the money he might have had was in the land. He was land rich, cash poor. Um, So we had to figure out a way of doing that. But We did know that, um, you know, my husband, when he left Iowa, he also ended up in San Francisco in culinary school. Um, So and then he was a a high end, you know, working in high end restaurants and ended up as a butcher, actually, for our last 12 years in San Francisco. So combined, we had an enormous amount of knowledge about food in very different ways, you know, from his growing up on the farm, all of his education, mine about sustainable agriculture, and also my having visited a lot of different farms around the world. Um, So we wanted to do something that was not chemically based, you know, we didn't want to be using chemicals, not only because of what it did to the land, but because of how, you know, I had learned about what kind of debt 
farmers went into and how that becomes just a real cycle. Uh, so our vision was to change it to something that we felt was much more sustainable, both for the environment and probably economically for us. Also, I mean, we're going to we're going to dig deep into the economics of farming and your farm specifically. But you also were entering into this idea at a point in your lives where your children were grown and the economics of farming were maybe not as frightening or as vital as they are to many young families. Yes, that is definitely true. So we were very aware of the privilege that we were coming into this with. So um, we had family wealth of some kind, you know, not, not extraordinary wealth of any kind, but there was wealth that had built up over the generations in our family that many families, particularly families of color, have not been able to build. So we had that. We had... Um, my parents had helped us to buy a house in San Francisco because even on a professor and a well-employed butcher's salary, you're not buying a house in San Francisco anytime soon without a real nest egg behind you. So they had helped us with that. And probably most importantly for us moving here was that we had access to land, a lot of land, um, comparatively to California standards, of course. But, you know, 530 acres is a sizable kind of farm to come to that if we were having to purchase, we could never afford. So many new farmers, um, many people who would like to get into farming uh, can't because these are barriers to entry that are just enormous. Um, and if you add to that some of the issues that um, farmers of color are having to deal with, discrimination, for example, at banks or the USDA, all of which is very well documented. That's not, um, I'm not just kind of making things up out of thin air. Um, it becomes something that it's very difficult to attract people who are in their 20s, 30s, even 40s. And we at 53 now, we're pretty average age for beginning farmers. That That's, you know, the statistics show that beginning farmers with big quotes around it are often older farmers because people can't afford to get into it at a younger age. Well, and I think that's so important to underline because we still have these notions about family farms. And we still have these really romantic notions about growing up and, and getting into farming. But it is getting to be increasingly rare for someone to move into really farming on the family farm after high school or after college, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you know, when you compare the statistics um, from farming to other industries, like the average age of farmers is almost 60, 60 years old. Um, and probably even more alarming is just that the number of farmers at the at the much younger ages, like in their 30s, is just always on the decline. There's just not that many people coming in at that point. So yes, even though uh, and that's not what it's like in other industries. If you compared it, it's not like that's across the board. So farming is unique in that way. Um, 
And, you know, just like you're saying, we have these romantic notions of young families and we, you know, we see those images all the time. You think about all of the YouTube videos out there with people homesteading or just, you know, pictures on any website about that has anything to do with food. You see like a young family holding hands in a field. They're typically white. They're typically young. Um, and With that sun setting on the horizon. We're, we're yes. going to have to take a short break, Beth. Okay. We'll, we'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Beth Hoffman. She is a beginning farmer and the author of Bet the Farm, the Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. I'm talking with Beth Hoffman. She had a successful career as a journalist and a journalism professor, and then at about the age of 50, decided to become a beginning farmer in the state of Iowa. She and her husband moved back to his family farm in southern Iowa, and they have been farming now for just about three years. She has written about their experiences and the business of farming in the new book, Bet the Farm, the Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. And Beth, I want to talk about access to land. You write about this extensively and it's just the biggest barrier to getting into farming for pretty much anyone who wants to farm. Paint the picture for us. Why is it so difficult to get your hands on land? Well, um, you know, most most of, like, if you think about Iowa, for example, there's um, 1% of the land in Iowa is public land. The rest of it is privately owned. Um, and across the nation, we have um, 98% of the land in the country is owned by white landowners. So add that to the mix. So if you are anybody who doesn't already own land, whose family doesn't already own land, particularly if you are not white, um, it becomes very, very difficult to access. I mean, there's been extraordinary sales that are taking place in Iowa right now. There's a kind of a, a big land rush that's happening uh, for kind of confusing reasons. <laughs> I'm not really sure because the land, uh, if you do agriculture on the land, if you're growing corn, it will never actually make the kind of money that you would need to pay off paying, you know, $18,000 an acre for, um, for the land. So um, it's, it's just become more and more difficult to get into the game because of that, that extraordinary cost, plus the other kinds of infrastructure that you would then need to get, like if you're going to do row cropping, having some kind of, you know, tractors and combines and uh, cedars and everything else, it all adds up very, very quickly for people. Well, and this idea of multiple generations farming the same land, 
we see farmers continuing to work longer and longer and, you know, well into their 60s often. They need the income from the farm. And then if they have the next generation and often even the next generation who wants to also farm that land, there needs to be enough income to go around. So even in a family with land, access to land is a barrier, right? Yeah, because you have such little income actually coming from the crops, if if any, um, that, yes, to divide it up when one person is maybe trying to make some income is one thing. But then if you have another generation, so you're trying to divide it or, you know, it becomes like you're making less and less per person. Um, and this is one of the reasons why uh, hogs have become such a thing, you know, in Iowa as in confinement units, um, also now poultry, um, because you can you can actually with very little ground have additional income. Um, the the cost to the family, in my perspective, is w- way too much, um, and it doesn't actually uh, equate in my book to why you would do it, but that is why. Like one of the only reasons why people do it is because they have a next generation coming to the farm who needs to make income. And for me, this is part of the reason why I wrote the book is like if we don't understand why that's the reason why people would have a hog facility, for example, then there's no way to actually work to counter that. So if we don't want as many hog facilities, we have to work at the reasons why people are doing it in order to alleviate that problem. Well, and we are here in this state. Let's dig into that a little bit because uh, this divide between the agricultural world and the non-agricultural world it can be a pretty deep divide here in the state where there are lots of accusations made on, on both sides. So when you talk about people being anti-hog confinement. There are a lot of people in Iowa who don't want a hog confinement near them. They don't want to smell it. They are opposed to the idea of it. And there are a lot of people who operate hog confinements uh, because that's how they're going to make a living, or at least they believe that's that's how they're going to make a living. So I feel like a lot of what you do in this book can help us bridge that divide and actually maybe get past some of those accusations and and understand why someone would take their farm in that direction. Yeah, it, it was a big reason why I wrote the book. It's just that I, I really feel that in this, in this world, we've become so divided, right? Like you're just on one side or the other of everything. And if we don't have any compassion or empathy about why each of us thinks what we do or does what we do, there's no way to actually find any middle ground or to even, you know, alleviate the problems, I would say. So, um, yes, in the case of hog confinement, as a banker, the banker, um, Leslie Miller, um, she recently retired, but she's uh, been, in, was in ag lending for a very long time. She, the way she put it to me was this, like, there's only, there's very few reasons why you would have a hog facility. It's because if you already had row crop land, so you could put manure somewhere, and if you have another generation coming to the farm who needs to farm. So like we were saying, if you, if you want to have your child come 
and work on the farm, there's no other way to make more money so that that person can come onto the farm. Having a hog facility, you can take just a few acres, take out an enormous loan, like we're talking about somewhere around $700,000, $750,000 loan, um, put up a hog facility, which is two very specific um, specifications by the the company who you will contract with, who's who's usually, you know, like Iowa, uh, there's they're kind of intermediary companies between the um, JBSs and the farmer. Um, so they contract with you. They tell you how to put up the hog house, um, what has to happen in it. You uh, typically. Have build the house so that it's just under regulation where regulations would kick in. So that number is actually 2,500 hogs. Um, under that number, you can kind of do whatever you want without much regulation in the state. And then for all of that, and then them working at this basically 24-7 because it, you know the hogs are in there. Someone has to be taking care of them and watching what's happening. Um, for all of that work, and I, I've gotten this off of actually websites of the contracting companies, um, you can expect to make somewhere around $20,000 a year. So it's, it's not much. Once you've paid off the building in 30-ish years, then you could possibly make some actual money from it because you don't have to pay these enormous mortgage payments all the time um, but that would only be like if you really kept up the building because the specifications you know are very specific um, so I, I really feel like it's important to understand that setup and yes I you know I had a somebody interviewing me said to me you know do I do I sense empathy like I don't think I've ever read a book that has real empathy for people putting up hog facilities and yet is about sustainable farming. And yes, I have enormous empathy for the humans who are trying to make a living and keep land and be farming. I don't have empathy for the the manure problems that it creates and the smell problems. And I would never want one around my house. But I think that those are important things to understand in order for us to figure out solutions to this problem. I'm talking with Beth Hoffman. She's the author of Bet the Farm, the Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. And so that $20,000 of income after all of that work, after all of that investment, all of that expense, and the incredible amount of debt that a farmer is carrying for getting into that Let's talk a little bit more about this. I, I think it's kind of ironic. You know, you moved here from San Francisco, which is one of the most inflated real estate markets in the country. And, you know, and thinking about, okay, we can take this nest egg from selling our home in San Francisco and come to Iowa, and that can buy a lot of house in Iowa. You know, that's one of the things that people come here for is for the quality of life. And then you start talking about the economics of farming and we're talking San Francisco economics again. The amount right. of debt that most farmers have to carry or, or do carry on an annual basis 
is mind-boggling. So moving away from the hog confinement, I mean, just thinking about conventional farmers who are doing row cropping, who have all of that expensive equipment that they need to have to do that work that allows them to, to do it with very few humans who are actually involved in the work, the amount of debt that they have to carry is really enormous. Talk us through some of those economics. Yeah, there's um, there was a study that um, it's actually like a, a business research group did, but the, it's it's the um, the average debt I believe it was in Nebraska for a farm is something like one point five million dollars. So um, you know, a lot of people look at that and say, well, then you get these big tax write offs, and that this this you know looks like farms aren't making as much income because you turn around with whatever money that you you actually might make from the farm and invest it back into the farm, and so therefore you have lots of assets. But the problem with that theory is, is like you might never see that as cash. It might you you would have to actually sell everything that you had and be out of the business entirely to reap the benefits from that, which becomes very difficult in these farm transfer kind of situations from one generation to the next. So how a farmer can get out without having to sell all of their land um, is, is a very tricky situation. Um, and, you know, if it's, if it's an that you have to put in in order to run the farm, if you need that combine, for example, then, you know, you kind of can't say, well, that's, that should be income. So it, it, it's kind of, it's a very tricky situation. And you can see companies like John Deere who offer financial services. Um, it, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon now that you can actually go spend 500, you know, whatever, $700,000 on a combine. Um, but that, you know, John Deere will actually financially uh, help you do that by giving you the loan. Um, there's some very interesting kinds of, of complications that start happening where who's the, the money that's being used on a farm, that all of the debt that's happening is actually going outside of even agriculture, you know, outside of farming and farmers and our communities to larger groups that are running financial services like that. So um, the debt situation, I, you know, personally, if I had to do that every year and I, you know, owed $8,000 a month, for example, on my hog facility, I just don't know that I could sleep at night. So it, it's just the level of stress, too, that has to be considered that we sometimes think, OK, well, if I put all this money in, you know, I, I, I get this debt rolling. Well, then I can make money. But is it worth the stress? And are we really making more money at the end of the day than we would have without those huge debts? Well, you uh have a graph in your book about median farm income. And this was really interesting because we all, I guess anybody who who knows farmers and has taken the time to to understand the business of agriculture knows that that 
at this point in time, the majority of farms have somebody in the family who is working off the farm, who's bringing in income from somewhere else. And that's been going on for quite a while. But in that graph, you show us how dependent a lot of these farms are on that off-farm income to the point where the off-farm income is often actually supporting the farming. Yeah. So it's it's the statistics are like it's like 90 percent of farms have off farm income. Um, And like you're mentioning, it's what's really interesting about that is that I I guess I kind of assumed that, you know, you had the farm, the farm is doing its thing. Right. And then you've got this off farm income. Your spouse um, goes to town, works and gets health care, which is an enormous part of this this equation. They get um, health insurance there, and then they bring home the income that then supports the family. But the actual statistics show that that income is not just supporting the family and the home and your cars or whatever. It's actually paying for the farm itself. So the reason for this is that because when you go and try and get a loan, you you are looked the bank looks at your overall family income. So it's looking at that off farm income as a main source of income and it's loaning you based on that amount of money. So at the end of the day, what that money is being used for is to be paying off those loans for the farm. So it becomes, again, a very vicious cycle because if you think about it as well, that means we need to have good jobs available in town or we lose more farms, which means less people, which means less vibrant rural communities. And that continues to spiral as well. Well, this is you you refer to this as a treadmill many times in the book. And, and it does. It just feels like this endless cycle. And we haven't talked about government subsidies in this equation. And, and we'll do that a little bit a little bit later on. I mean, there are so many different pieces to this puzzle. But for farmers, uh, there must be this incredible pressure to continue doing what you're doing to be able to not go bankrupt. It's, it's an incredible pressure. I, I think that's accurately put. And it's also, you know, it's cultural. I think that, you know, my, my father-in-law was, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, took out huge loans. You know, we, we, he put up a, a silo um, in the 70s that, you know, he was paying off for the next 30 years. Um, And that's just kind of part of the culture. Like if you, especially if you get ahead with the technology, like he put up that silo to have chopped hay to feed out cattle, um, to fatten cattle. He, um, you know, he was one of the first people to do that. He was an early adopter. And we'll talk about that, that pattern in just a moment. I'm talking with Beth Hoffman. She is the author of Bet the Farm, The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. She'll be at Prairie Lights Bookstore on December 3rd at 7 p.m., a virtual conversation so you can join from anywhere. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. This hour, I'm talking with Beth Hoffman. She had a very successful career as a journalist and as an associate professor of journalism and then became a beginning farmer, moved to Iowa with her husband, where they took over operation of the family farm, their fifth generation, to work on this farm. She has written a book about the business of farming and their personal experiences. It's called Bet the Farm, the Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. And Beth, just before the break. We were talking about that the debt load that farmers carry and that treadmill that they're on to be able to make just enough money to cover the debt and stay alive and take care of their families. And, and often they don't make enough money to do all of that with the farm. They have to get supplemental income. And you were talking about your father-in-law who built a silo. And when he did that, that was kind of a new technology, a new way to do things. He made the investment it was successful, but then it became obsolete in in not very long. We see that pattern over and over again with farmers where this is the new way to do things. The early adopters do really well with it. And then 20 years later, they've got a bunch of equipment that they can't use anymore because that's not how we do it anymore, right? Yeah, it's, um, you know, part of the problem is has been this, what, you know, what I call the bigger is better myth that we see a lot in Iowa agriculture, right? So it's all about having to get bigger, get the latest equipment, the better seeds, more fertilizers. Um, and what ends up happening, and if you look at this kind of over time historically, is, is that, yes, the early adopters get out ahead. And what they, what all of these, um, all of these different things, machinery, seeds, do is increase yield. So you increase the yield. So those early adopters get out ahead, like my father-in-law, and um, then you can make more money that way. But pretty soon, what happens is because everybody then adopts it, and the yields kind of all go up. Then we start seeing the market being flooded, and we see that over and over again. You can look at market prices, and you can kind of peg when this has happened. The demand just is way smaller than the supply. And so the unique part about agriculture as well is, is that if you were somebody who made pencils, for, let's say you were um, manufacturing pencils, and the cost of making pencils went up and the price you were receiving for it went down, you would make less pencils, right? You would, you would not try and sell as many pencils. You would maybe shift gears and do something else. That is not what farmers do. Typically, when the cost goes up, the price that they're receiving comes down they then double down and often with by taking out more debt, grow more of the product. So then the price keeps dropping very often. And so, we see, yeah, we see that the solution is supposed to be like new markets. Like we always, you know, and, and that's worked in the past uh, where we've, the, the supply can be absorbed because we have a new market, a new export 
support a new product. Like biofuels or ethanol, like, that, that kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. And so we saw that biofuel, um, we saw ethanol, you know, had that big spike in prices, a lot more flooded the market, price drops. And now is there really going to be like a huge new market for ethanol? Uh, you know, I think that's quite questionable. But that's where people have, you know, put their eggs in that basket at this point. Well, and and I don't want to dig too deeply into um, government subsidies and the farm bill because we could do a whole nother hour about that. But I will say that you do an excellent job digging into what is an incredibly complicated system <laughs> that that yeah. farmers are very dependent on in this country. I, I want to talk a little bit about you know, some of the the changes to technology or the changes to farming that have been profitable and also serve the land well in recent years have been making the shift to organic or to grass-fed beef or grass-finished beef or, you know, trying to make that switch. Making that switch is incredibly difficult for a number of reasons. One is because transitioning to organic can mean loss of farm income for a couple of years as you make that transition. So that's a really hard one to make. But also as new farmers coming in and and transitioning your family farm, you also found that it was difficult to find good information, good advice and support, right? Yeah, I mean there are there are wonderful groups out there like the Practical Farmers of Iowa for anybody who doesn't know them. You know, it's really it it's like a it feels like it's a very supportive place where you can kind of, you know, via the emails like ask any kind of question you might have. But I guess my point in the book was like we have these these resources. We have these USDA offices in every single county. And yet, and they're full of people who are, you know, well-intentioned, who are excited to help, um, sometimes just not very well-versed on what other kinds of things you might need to do or people, farmers might want to do on the land because it's asked about so infrequently. So if you were somebody working in an office, in a USDA office, um, and, you know, the the bills change every five years. You've got new things to learn, new new computer programs, new everything all the time. And on, and then you have you know just occasionally a farmer walk in and say, "Hey, we're interested in organics." It's it's a tough thing to have people be prepared to deal with that. And I see there's a lot of groups who have been working to train. Uh, the different offices, like I know Iowa Organics, um, the Organic Association has had a push to try and train people in offices. But it's just, it's an enormous task when the intention really of those offices is to provide programs, not advice, not information. And it feels like it's the same way kind of with the extension offices, that there's just not a real push to utilize those those resources of having county offices and university professors and all that to actually figure out how to transition farmers in the best way to doing other kinds of things. And I'm not I'm not even saying that everybody needs to go organic. It's just that even if you just look at that oversupply problem, 
it's it's one where farmers need alternatives. We need to be able to grow something besides corn, soybean, and hogs. Because if we do that and the push is constantly for yield, we will always end up in the situation with farmers oversupplying a market and having lower prices. You draw some parallels to the period before the farm crisis of the 1980s, some things that you feel that you see in farming right now that may lead us to a collapse of some kind. Are, is that something that you really think is, is in our future? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, what, what economists would say is that, oh, it's not the same situation because what caused the 80s collapse, the farm crisis, was high interest rates. So people got really excited. We had this, you know, a lot of people buying land. And this has happened many times in our history in, in the U.S., not just the 80s. That's the most the one people know of, but you the know, one we all lived through, right? right. Eighteen nineteen, the same ha- thing happened. So, um, you know, I, I what I do see though is we don't have high interest rates, but we do have a situation where investors are starting to come in and drive up the prices of land, and so where we have land concentrated right now, it looks like that is going to be a continuing trend. And what that would mean is, is that farmers then become, you know, people who are just renting land. We have sort of, we'll end up with people who don't even have the equity in the land, which is really the valuable part of this whole equation is the land. And if you take that away and concentrate that, even more, I just don't see how it will be possible for people to continue to farm and and afford to pay off the debts that they have already. So I think that because we have such high debt right now, such high debt um, and and not being able to actually get to anywhere near paying it off from the farming activities, we're putting ourselves in a very vulnerable state. Um, and as you could see from the pandemic, where we had those supply chain interruptions, if we don't have a system in place where we can handle things locally and feed ourselves a bit more locally, if that system starts to fail us, there is no backup. You know, there, there's, we, we don't have it ready to go where we could just, you know, switch gears and have something else that's viable. Let's talk about your farm. So you've had a lot of adventures and trials and error in the last few years. You mentioned it's a 530-acre farm, and you farm under the name Whipperwill Creek Farm. Tell me how things are going now. Things are going well. I mean, the first biggest, um, you know, the difficult thing about beginning farming is, you know, the learning curve is, is gigantic. And the amount of time and energy for sustainable farming can be the the amount of time you have to spend on the farm can be really uh, shocking <laughs> to put it say the least. Um, so we are at a point where we are raising grass finished beef. We've had reports from everyone who's purchased our beef actually that it was some of the best beef they've ever had. 
Um, so that's, that's a big concern with grass finishing because um, oftentimes it could be tough. Ours is not tough at all. So that's probably first and foremost, you know, we have the taste, the animals are extremely healthy. Um, everybody who's looked at them, you know, who knows about cattle looks at them and says, wow, look at their shiny coats. And, you know, they're, they're just, we have great genetics that are going on on the farm. Um, and we've, we're figuring out slowly, slowly how to manage our time better, which um, helps on a economic level, but it helps on that mental health level where having things kind of planned out, figuring out how much time we can put into our different kinds of things we have to do on the farm can then free up time to do things like marketing and writing about it for the blog and, and those kinds of things. So it's slow. It's a slow process of learning, but um, I feel like we've made some real gains. You write a lot about the kind of farming that you're trying to do and, and the connections you've made with other farmers who are doing community-supported agriculture or, you know, farming in in now non-traditional ways, not conventional farming. You write a lot about the really difficult economics of that kind of farming as well and how a lot of people really don't last and can't last because of the economics and the incredible hard work of this kind of farming. Where do you see this going in the future? Well, I think that one of the things that we have to consider, I mean, one of the reasons why sustainable farms have a really hard time is is because of that, the amount of labor needed and capital um, that needs to go into it. But there's been more of a push, I think, recently with beginning farmer training to try and have um, business, you know, learning business of farming to be part of the training. Um, I think that is very helpful. Um, I think that it can be done even better. Uh, I think that once people start, you know, as a professor, as a professional educator, I see lots of opportunity for using teaching techniques in classes that are set up for farmers, for example. And I think that through, through improving some of those services, we'll be able to help people navigate not just like, you know, how to have a cash flow chart, but how to navigate things like access to land or, um, um, how to find capital in your community and, and those kinds of services. So it's, it's something that, you know, was taught to me through the process of this book was, is, you know, you can, you can, even if you give people land, it doesn't take away the fact that this whole system has been discriminatory, has been set up in certain ways that, you know, exclude some people and, and don't favor some kinds of crops. You know, it's, it's like if we're just pushing corn and soybeans, everybody else isn't really served as, as well. Um, so I, I see a lot of opportunity in those ways that to improve those kinds of services and educational opportunities um, and make, make, make it so that farmers have more opportunity and more options than 
you know, doing the one crop and having one buyer to sell to. That that system is not working for anybody. You also make it clear that you believe that the way forward is through cooperation as opposed to competition because this business is not like other businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's been very interesting to, if you look at, even on billboards when you drive around in Iowa, the language about farming is always warlike. Like there's always analogies to like winning the battle and, and, and this kind of like beat your competition. And it's so actually unhelpful for farmers to think of that, their, their job that way, because who are we beating just each other? Like if I'm trying to have higher yields and you're trying to have higher yields across the road, what are we doing to each other? We're just driving down the price for everybody. So, um, it's yes, it's a very interesting thing to think about how we could all work together in a much more mutually beneficial way. So there's, you know, we can all do better by working together. Beth Hoffman, thank you so much for talking with me and for such a thought-provoking book. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot. Beth Hoffman is the author of Bet the Farm, the Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. She'll be in conversation with Chuck Offenberger through Prairie Lights Bookstore. This is a virtual event coming up on December 3rd at 7 p.m., so you can join in the conversation from anywhere. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe.